Salam Ajamion Aziz. Welcome to our second podcast. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Kamyar. And I'm Rustin. And we are so happy to be greeting you now officially on the internet. Uh, two podcasts yeah. in, you know, terrible twos. Um, let's just, I mean, this time there's no more intro, right? So we can just get started and, uh, and get into what we're yeah. doing today. I mean, I just want to um, kind of. I think this is a moment to celebrate, Kamiya. We finally are on iTunes. <sighs> I didn't believe it when you texted me in the morning. We I made had to it like big. rub my eyes like a cartoon character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, if uh, if you're one of the first people to um, to hear this episode, uh, thank you for checking in. Hopefully, you you found us through um, iTunes or what they have on Android. I don't even, I don't it's even know like what the they Google use Android, Podcast like, Store, which I only found out about the other okay. day. So no offense to the to the <laughs> Android people. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's let's get started. Um, so from. Um, if you were paying attention to the first episode, kind of the format we thought that we would like to stick with uh, is to kind of spend 10 minutes discussing um, uh, an, uh, an interesting article that we have been reading over the last week, uh, followed by um, having a guest interview and then closing out with some, some music that, uh, from, from one of Kamyar's curated mixes. Uh, so today I just want to get started by talking about this recent foreign policy article that I saw by one of our colleagues, uh, Nargis Bagjogli, um, which is called, Did a Terrorist Attack Just Save the Iranian Regime? Which is um, a terrible title. But according but, to Nargis, um, the uh, editor chose it, right? Thankfully, not, not her. Yeah, exactly. And so if you're not familiar with Nargis, um, you might be more, uh, well, we've actually had her on the Emergent Scholarship podcast when we first started off maybe a couple years ago. Um, she is now a professor of politics. I have to check, actually. She is a... You know, while you check, by the way, we need to bring that interview yeah. back because, you know, that was before we were on the iTunes store. So, you know, maybe a bonus yeah. episode or a little mini episode. We'll just play some good clips from that because it's... That was a really good interview. Yeah. And that was, yeah, for, for those of you who are curious, that episode was about um, uh, cultural, pro- cultural production of uh, Basij militia members uh, post, uh, post-Iran Iraq war. So it was basically about, you know, uh, movie uh, directed to, to video movies, but also like big uh, blockbusters that were produced in Iran, like that kind of commemorate the war and being produced by... Uh, by Basij uh, volunteers. So it was definitely worth checking out. Uh, we had a great time having that com- conversation. But um, today uh, she, she wrote an interesting article. So Nargis is a, an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University um, at the School of International Studies. And uh, she's actually talking about the recent uh, terrorist attack that happened in, uh, in the city of Ahwaz or Ahwaz um, in southwestern Iran or Khuzestan. So for those of you who are not familiar... Um, I believe it was last week, there was a military parade to celebrate, or to, not to celebrate, but to commemorate the um, anniversary of the end of the Iran-Iraq war. And there was an attack on this military parade, which left 25 uh, people dead and dozens more injured. And um, there's been a lot of speculation in the news about who carried this out, what was going on, um, if it's 
you know, part of this larger proxy war between, you know, Saudi Arabia, um, other Gulf states, or if this was a part of, um, you know, ethnic nationalism and separatism. I mean, it's, um, you'll, you'll see a lot of experts going on TV and, and uh, giving their, their hot takes about it. But the um, reason why I really wanted to talk about this article is I think that Nargis is a fantastic scholar. She's done a lot of, she's an anthropologist by training, so she's done a lot of great work with um, human subject interviews and uh, making a lot of context from people uh, in Iran um, during her, her research on the Iran-Iraq war. Um, so she basically starts off discussing with some of her, uh, her contacts about um, issues of the economy, um, the uh, kind of economic struggles that people are having in the region, but in Iran at large, but also um, this idea that this terrorist attack might have um, galvanized a lot of nationalist sentiment um, for the regime uh, in a moment that it, there is a feeling of precariousness due to, let's say, uh, economic-driven uh, protests, um, other issues uh, surrounding the nuclear deal. So, I mean, it's definitely worth, um, worth taking, a, taking a read. Kamyar, have you... Um, yeah, I, I, I read it. What do you think it, about the article? Um, Did you get a chance also, to read it? It's com- the attack was just, if we said it wrong, commemorating the start of the war, the, the day that it occurred. So okay, thank you. So we'll edit in case we accidentally said end. Um, yeah, I really liked... I really enjoyed the article. Um, I feel like... Sometimes, especially when you get the flashy title, you're going to get sort of a very simplified narrative with some of the the main tropes. But I loved this because it's such a tough thing to discuss with people because there's two easy hot takes, right? One, Iranian government is chauvinistic and terrible. This is what's coming to them. Two, this was a MEK, Saudi, Israel, etc. plot. Um... And obviously, you know, there's actually some more interesting stuff to be said, kind of actually beyond just the question of who, what, why, but more sort of like, okay, well, you know, what's really the effect and the way we can understand um, what this is going to do to society and things like that. So, I mean, I really enjoyed the article. I would say the best thing that anyone can do is to just really give it a good read and also keep following Nagus's work because that's the kind of nuance that, like, Gets the Ajab gold star, you know? Two thumbs up, okay. Uh, I mean, another thing that I found really interesting about her piece is when she kind of goes into the discussion of uh, Iranian nationalism, right? So, like, reason why I find this interesting is because um, when you read this idea of uh, Khomeinism or, like, revolutionary Islam in the 1970s, um, you have a particular set of... Uh, symbols and themes and ideas that are circulating in society. Um, And you kind of have this in response to, let's say, like a secular nationalism, right? So when we talk about uh, nationalism in the the Islamic Republic, it has a particular flair. Um, And what she's talking about is actually like that there is this recent trend in the last couple of decades, I guess from um, um, uh, post-Iran-Iraq war, Um, but also kind of exemplified by um, the Basij or the Revolutionary Guards or even the Ahmadinejad regime, where you have kind of these growing uh, presence and and growing circulation of uh, non, let's say, Islamic uh, symbols and nationalist 
tropes that are kind of uh, coming back. So I think she gives the example of the Farah Har is becoming once again popular. Um, and I, I just think it's interesting to like um, frame this, especially when we're talking about the Iran-Iraq war, we're talking about issues of um, ethnic nationalism, separatism, autonomy um, in, in, these, uh, in, in Iran. Um, you know, I think that this is an interesting time to bring that stuff in. And I don't know, Kamyar, what did you think? No, I think that's, that's like super interesting in the sense that, you know, especially for people who don't follow, um, you know, Iran too closely, especially with contemporary changes and stuff. I think having someone decode some of the small ways that you can express uh, culturally, like a more nationalistic versus more maybe like, you know, kind of a, a perspective that's more sort of like Islamist, I guess, if you want to use the term. I don't know how, how that sounds in Iran context. But it's nice to have those kind of decoded and put out, you know, in an article, like a foreign policy article, some of the some of the interesting stuff like the the name you choose you know uh let alone recently but you know for decades and decades of iranian history uh your name is you know a way to kind of show your political or sort of um your beliefs on religion whether or not your child has like a more religious name or a uh a, a more like uh i don't know if you want to call it the ancient iranian name or like my name a kind of made up persian name with like a weird combination of old roots but yeah, I, I like going into the weeds of things like that. Uh, I think that was a good way to take this article. And- sure. Um, yeah, I mean, so if you haven't already, um, check out the piece. Um, it's on foreignpolicy.com, Nagas Bakjoli. Um, definitely, definitely worth a read. So, Kamiara, what do we got for, for the second half of the show? For the second half? Yeah, I, think, I think it's guest time. What do you think? I'm yeah, kind of tired of us. On. I'm, I'm, t- I'm yeah, definitely tired we, of we, me. We were just saying certo yeah, pairs, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? It's just so. a lot of certo pairs, a lot of chara. <laughs> People are probably like, oh, man, this is like a two, one of those weird oh. two-person Second episode, is this what's going to be? Yeah, yeah. is it going to be like this, this, for, for every episode? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, let me, um, well, luckily enough for our readers, we have uh, a guest sitting with us today. Um uh, I'd like to introduce uh, Josh Souter, or Joshua Souter. Uh, he's a PhD candidate at uh, New York University in the History and East uh, Asian Studies Department. Um, and uh, Josh is a specialist of uh, religion in uh, modern China, probably, I think 19th and 20th century China. Yeah, late 19th. Great. So um, just wanted to, to welcome you to the podcast. Hi, Josh. Thank you. Hey, Josh. I kind of wanted to... Uh, Hello. I was really wanted to eerily kind of like come in as this third voice earlier, but um, oh yeah, yeah, we had to speak. sort of plan oh, out your your entrance, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> are you just there for accent moments like, or like just never, sort of like never, underscore never something? pay no heed to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I'm glad you, I'm glad you you came in when you did. We're uh, I was getting annoyed at hearing our voices, so. Um, Today, um, I just uh, we you know we're kind of on a current events kick, and uh, today I just want to um, talk to you about something that y- you're you're definitely you have more expertise than we do about, and that's kind of what is happening um, in uh, Xinjiang region in western China, northwestern China, um, with the the Uyghur population. Yes, and um, so I don't know if anybody 
if our readers have been following the news, we've shared a couple articles about it on our Facebook and social media in general, our Twitter. Um, but there's been, there's well, first of all, there's this history of um, of a conflict between uh, this Uyghur community um, in this province and with the central uh, state. And uh, we just wanted to have Josh on board to kind of uh, flesh. And there's a lot of you know articles coming around about. Uh, re-education camps, concentration camps, uh, police surveillance, and presence on the streets. And we just wanted to have someone on to, to talk about this a little bit more. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I'm excited about this. What, what about you, Kamran? I'm super excited. Uh, let's, let's just give the floor to someone who's not us, right? Let's just, let's just get started. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess in terms of questions, um, I don't know, like for, for us, like, uh, for our readers, like who who are the Uyghurs? Where is Xinjiang province? What what is this all about? Yeah, I think more the what is this all about, right? Because I think the Ajami types are, you know, they're a little bit better on the first two than your than your average. That's true, mm. for sure. Yeah, we look. We're giving the listeners some credit. How about that? How many <laughs> how many podcasts out there like make you feel good about just being yeah. a listener? You know. Well, positive encouragement. Yeah, positive encouragement. All right, all right. Hopefully, you guys also give us I think give the us best a positive of any audience. Right. Uh, so, just very very quickly, uh, Xinjiang province is um, in north northwestern China, um, and it was incorporated more or less in its current boundaries in um, the mid 18th century. Uh, so, by the Qing dynasty, um, who were the Qing, of course, were a Manchu group of peoples um, from the north, from nor- north of China um, who took over uh, from the previous dynasty. And um, so Xinjiang was part of kind of an expansionist policy of the sixth emperor in this dynasty, Qianlong, uh, one of the more, oh, I guess in the field, like one of the more famous, one of the more kind of um, uh, vital emperors, I suppose. Uh, he, under his reign, like, the empire expanded into the boundaries that we really kind of recognize or some recognize as modern China. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was conflict basically in this area with the Zungar empire, which was at the time this kind of fading empire of um, Mongolian uh, tribesmen, more or less. Um, so at that, from that point on, uh, Xinjiang has been connected to the Chinese polity, um, on and off, and there's been a lot of conflict. There's obviously been wrestling with uh, the Russian Empire and then the Soviet Union. Yeah, I mean, this but We'll is, get into that. Yeah, I mean, like, this is something that um, I know a little bit more about, um, is the Uyghur population on uh, the other side of the boundary, right? So... Um, Basically, there's a there's a very I think in comparison, what there's like 10 million Uyghurs in in Xinjiang. It's something like that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So like uh, the I, in they're terms not of even the they're not even the largest um, Muslim group in China, um, but then but Xinjiang of course is just a, a, it's a massive area. Yeah. I mean, like so from I've you know I had the pleasure of, of reading uh, Scott Levi's uh, The History of Kokand. Mm. Um, which basically talks about the Central Asian Khanates in the 17th century, 18th century. But a lot of this is um, he's trying to connect to the expansion of the Chinese empire um, throughout the 17 and 1800s. And, I mean, so 
from from what I've I've read is that you know like Xinjiang, uh, right? Xinjiang. Xinjiang. Um, literally means frontier, yes. right? New frontier. It's new frontier. New frontier um, as the um, yeah, as the Qing name. Okay. Yeah, and so. I mean, before, I mean, there's other names for this region, right? So, like, another name that I've seen in the, in the sources is Altishahir, mm-hmm. which uh, is a Turkish root that means uh, uh, the six cities, right? And those are for the, the cities around the, the Tarim bases and then the Tarim Basin. And I think that's, like, you know, mostly, like, Aksu, Yarkand, um, Kashgar, um, Khotan, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, um, but basically, like, um, from what I've, uh, from you know, my own experience in reading, you know, Central Asian studies, is that um, there's also this a population of a hundred thousand that are in Kazakhstan, a population that's in Uzbekistan, around fifty thousand. Um, do you know anything about how they ended up there? Were they always there, or was there there's, a migration? Um, there's been a lot of migration. These borders were flexible at various points. Um, especially during the early 20th century um, when the the Chinese kind of central state had a very tenuous grip on this region. Um, And actually I would say the Soviets were um, just as, if not more, kind of influential in the region at the time. So these borders were always in flux. Um, There were a lot of treaties even in the uh, 17th, 18th centuries with with the Russian Empire, right? Redrawing, redrawing these boundaries and borders. All right. Um, but it's always been strategic, um, at least from the, I guess, from the side I know, from the Chinese perspective, right? Um, this new frontier zone was always strategic in the sense of trade routes. It's, um, it's kind of a gateway to Central Asia. The, the Russians are there. Um, so it's always had this kind of strategic importance, and that is even more uh, evident today. And uh, now that you bring up the issue of today, like one of the things I'm... I think we're both concerned about is how does this fit into uh, what we're reading on the news? Why why do we have these so, sorts of concentration camps? And so I guess this, we'll, or we're assuming a, an educated reader on this, but it's been hard to miss it if you're uh, missing the news. But but um, there have been a lot of articles. There's been a UN report. Um, even I think Marco Rubio was strangely. Um, interested in this sometimes i love that random republican like foreign policy knowledge you know like you pick any random place and all of a sudden like some senator who for some reason i don't know has like a constituency there or something is like issuing a statement you know like like oh like uh i support the uh the determination of uh kyrgyz people to unite their country you're like what like are you (laughs) Well, I guess also what's coming out is there's a lot of weird lobbying we forget about, right? Yeah. Like that guy uh, who was caught lobbying. in Armenia, Kemal Oksuz, right? This Azerbaijani lobbyist. I, not to go on a tangent, but if you're an Azerbaijani lobbyist, what a good place to hide. Like the last <laughs> place anyone would look is Armenia. But yeah, I mean, this is, I think this, just to go back to what we're discussing, this is an issue that... um I think, interestingly, beyond, you know, the the sort of the very terrible situation that seems to be taking place is the kind of confusing way that it's been, like, received or ignored in the media. Um, And I know that's a big part of the discourse on all this. So I think we just need someone here to to just take us through everything. So, yeah, keep going. So 
I mean, I guess with the basics, there's reports that up to potentially a million people have been placed into re-education centers, um, camps, uh, or imprisoned outright in the province. Uh, there have been uh, several uh, legal kind of decisions, um, uh, enforcements where any kind of Islamic uh, ex- quote-unquote extremist behavior, which can even be um, wearing a beard, it can be carrying a Quran, um, are evidence in the eyes of the state as some as Islamic extremism. So you have the forced shaving of beards, you have um, closing of mosques, of, church, of schools. Um, Xinjiang itself is a police state. Um, China is a very sophisticated system for monitoring its citizens all across the country, um, including like high-tech cameras, um, digital methods, this kind of thing. But it's particularly strong in the region. Um, there are places where you can only walk a hundred couple hundred meters at most before going through a checkpoint uh, with retina scans. Um, they have a point system based on uh, where you go, whom you've associated with, whether you have relatives abroad, which is potentially in the eyes of the state something concerning, that can basically give you a ranking on a scale of, uh, I think it's like safe to extremist. And so <laughs> yeah, is know. this a part of the... What was it, the social credit system? This is part of the social credit system that takes on a, uh, from my understandings, like a very, uh, it has a little bit different of an edge to it, you know, if you are Uyghur than if you are Han. So the the history of it of late, I would say, of the region is that Xinjiang is a very strategic province in the sense that there's been a lot of mass migration um, within China, within the Han population. The Han are... The majority, uh, probably 94, uh, roughly, percent of the population is ethnically Han, Chinese. And there's been massive internal immigration to Xinjiang as they have opened it up to business. Um, there's new construction opportunities. It's difficult in China because of a system called the hukou um, to actually move within China. You need to stay in your home province to work, to get benefits, but they've actually restricted Russian, this. Russian listeners will know it as propiska. Yeah. Yes. Registration. <laughs> it, it's, 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 it's similar, but one of the ways that the Chinese state um, has, in, in, um, you know, has decided to increase immigration is by relaxing this if you want to move to Xinjiang. So a place like Urumqi now has a couple million people, which is... Not, it makes it not a terribly large city within China, but uh, I think that's now like s- at least 70% Han, um, and it's very segregated. So if you go to the Uyghur part of the city, you won't see Han Chinese there, um, not too many anyways, uh, and it'll have a very different feeling than the rest of the city, which is um, in a lot of ways kind of not distinguishable from anywhere else in China. Mm. Um, and so... You is this is this are these security measures or is this uh, let's say like uh, counter Islamic radicalist um, uh, program is this based in some historical precedent or fear of of terrorism or I mean there, what, what's the reason for this? So there are a couple of reasons. Um, first, there's local tensions because of immigration, um, 
and Uyghurs see this as their livelihoods being pushed down. They see it as their culture um, being um, oppressed. Um, so there's just some of it's just migration, immigration tensions. Um, there's a lot of effort to appear to be policing the Uyghurs in order to entice Han Chinese to come, right? Because it's oh, it's safe. Look how look how we're policing the Uyghurs. So like you can come, you can open your shop, you can come work here, um, you can move here. That's part of it. Part of it also is that Xinjiang is taking on a lot of especially new strategic importance um, with a China's One Belt, One Road initiative, which is um, at least like a trillion-dollar um, Chinese initiative to kind of dominate foreign trade within uh, Central Asia, the Indian Ocean, and around the world, actually. Um, so it's a massive uh, foreign policy project for the Chinese state that is, has a lot of, uh, based, is based a lot of, a lot of it is based out of Xinjiang, and these are important trade routes. Xinjiang has at least like, I think it's 25% of China's oil reserves, um, or was it natural gas reserves, I believe, and like 40% of its coal. Um, of course, China is very coal dependent. So it's a very strategic place in that sense. Um, and there have been incidents over the last decades of, um, of attacks on civilian populations in Tiananmen Square. A couple years ago, there was a car um, attack within Urumqi, within um, different places in Xinjiang and around the country. There have been uh, bus bombings. There have been knife attacks. Um, mostly on a smaller scale, but these have, uh, and mostly kind of perpetrated, at least, at least we think, um, or the Chinese state thinks, by uh, Uyghur separatist uh, movements. And so this has really been but used... But here's, here's my question that I've been dying to ask someone who knows more, is how do we characterize this sort of I mean, what do you, is it, is it Han migration? Is it kind of like settlement? Is it a state project? You know, why has the suddenly the, the demographics of this region been changing over just a few decades? How do we understand that? So, I mean, I, of course, as, as uh, academics, we would quabble and debate over terms like settler colonialism or something like that. But I think it's actually on that kind of scale. Um, so one of the, I mean, I think you have to understand like the new uh, modern kind of state-run capitalist China, um, and that there are a lot of, simply put, economic opportunities in Xinjiang as populations are looking to move to take advantage of new industries, of new economic modes of production, um, and it's merely a manifestation of that in some sense. Just some uh, some uh, gentrification of the of the Central Asian <laughs> frontier lands. It's the gentrification, yeah. The I, and so I mean these incidents are uh, there are a handful of incidents, but they're used as an excuse for this kind of um, heavy-handed uh, police state tactics. Mm-hmm. I think I think it was two thousand nine. Actually, there was a pretty large riot in Urumqi where it was. A, a thousand or more. Of course, these are uh, Chinese state sources and reporting, so we we don't always know. But um, where they, I I do remember protests. years before there was a little bit more, at least in and maybe it's my my memory is just not correct. A little bit more like media coverage of the situation, maybe because 
compared to now, it feels like there's less things to constantly there were, be following. And there were a handful but, of would, Uyghurs who were imprisoned in Guantanamo Bay. Um, oh, and yeah, so that yeah, yeah. so that actually within the U.S. media, um, I think a lot of them were moved to Palau, right, because they didn't want to like send them back to China, but they obviously didn't want, you know, people like Marco Rubio wouldn't want them to be brought to the United right. States to be tried, <laughs> right? So, so like that also kind of increased the media coverage in a very particular way in the United States. Huh. I mean, and this is something that I find super interesting is. Um, because we, after sharing a couple articles, we did get a lot of this sort of um, particular type of commenter who would basically say that you know we're sharing U.S. state propaganda against China, like that this is these these are all fabrications. Oh, we got messages, yeah, not we... even just comments. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, like, um, what, what? Why is this? Why is this so difficult to believe for certain people? Is it because? Is it more of an issue of? Uh, um, uh, reputation is a part of like this global axis of resistance against you know the U.S. hegemony. Is this um, why? Why are, are people? Um, why are there certain segments of of, of um, a population that would would flat out deny that you know these things are happening? So there's a it, within China within the China field. There's a very strong um, among Chinese scholars at times some. Right, there's a very strong nationalist um, bent in defense. Of course, uh, U.S. Uh, media uh, representations of China have a long and very troubled history. Sounds not like just Middle not Eastern just the United right? States, but yeah, and of course, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but in a lot of ways, this is kind of a trope where if you start to criticize something that is happening in Xinjiang or Tibet or elsewhere. Um, it will kind of fall back on this, like, well, you're just um, attacking China, right? Like, this is kind of propaganda. Um, this, is being, this is a minor incident that's being exploited. Um, and, in fact, when, you, the, when Chinese officials have been interviewed about this, like, they have said, like, my, you know, like, oh, this is, this is all fabricated. This is a minor incident. It's like some criminals are being sent to, uh, say, like, you know, they're being sent to centers where they can learn a useful... Uh, skill right. and like you know, so they can rejoin the workforce and like this kind of thing. So, so it's like uh, actually, we, they should be thanking us. Yeah, <laughs> this is what colonialism is about. I, yeah. I always think what's so interesting is, from especially from like the the Middle Eastern, whatever you want to call it, perspective, is how you know China is. In if it was if it was a state sort of near Iran or something. Like, think of the treatment China would be getting in the media and everything in this day and age, you know? Any small thing, any sort of, like, censorship, uh, mass incarceration and concentration camps, all these things would be, like, headline news, you know? But for super complicated reasons, which would probably take a whole podcast, you can sort of just not only ignore it, but especially if you have like if you're working in any sort of professional world, you'll just like interface with China like a normal country. Like at your job, you'll be like, oh, we're going to do a thing in China. Oh, you know, we're going to have an event in China. But you wouldn't really do that if the same way with like other states and other part of the world that have like these pretty obviously terrible human rights records. And I feel like this is kind of also part and parcel of that, which is. And somehow, I mean, obviously there's decades of a complicated history of China with sort of the U.S. and other countries, but at least for the past decade or two, we just kind of roll with it now. 
Yeah, and it's very much, I mean, part of, I mean, there's money to be made. Yeah, um, I think that's the I mean, ultimate it's, thing, it's, right? Essentially, I mean, I think there is money to be made here, um, and that has muted a lot. And if you go to a place uh, where, where most people, where most non, where most visitors to China would go, right, on the East Coast, and you go to somewhere like Beijing or you go to Shanghai, um, you're not going to encounter any of this. Of course, like state surveillance is all around you, and um, and more importantly, like the, for the it's there for the people who are actually living there than than for you, right? But you, people are not encountering this; they're not seeing it. And in fact, um, I haven't seen a lot yet of any kind of really like the, like no one's had access into these areas, right? It's it's very difficult to get there. It's kind of hidden away and out of view, and um, but, you know, it, there's enough evidence that we know what's going on. If you read the UN report, if you read journalism, if you talk to, read interviews of Uyghurs themselves, right, and family members disappeared or they've been disappeared themselves at times. So it's hard to it's hard to get a grasp on this, I think, from outside. Yeah, I don't know. I think that's a, that's a good place to leave it, as in right now we're kind of dealing with this um, initial reportage and we have... a sources and people who have vested interest in particular narratives, but um, hopefully we'll... This calls for an article. We need someone. Uh, you know, maybe Josh here is going to write yeah, something. Yeah, you should write for Ajahn. <laughs> we'll see about that. But yeah, I just... Uh, jo- okay. Josh, thanks for, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. I, I got some reading to do. Yeah, me too. Oh, we all do. The last thing, though, any recommended reads? I think that's a good way to end this, too. The if, recommended. If someone wants to go a little deeper on what we discussed. Yeah, would you, are you thinking um, more for a history of the area or for anything, really? Something more contemporary. Well, yeah, I think, I think a history would be good. Yeah, sometimes that's the hardest I would, one, one to choose uh, in the field. This is, um, well, now I have to be careful about whose books I recommend because. I know so many people whose <laughs> books I should recommend, and there's a lot of good ones. Uh, I would say anything by James Millward or uh, Peter Perdue, China Marches West, actually, and it's about the incorporation of Xinjiang into the Chinese uh, imperial polity. I would... Awesome. Uh, and just... Uh, nice. So, uh, can I also recommend a book? wasn't recommended, don't read those. Can I recommend a book, just too? Just read those. Send me, an, yeah, yeah, send me an email, and I will send you all kinds of recommendations from... <laughs> Also, like uh, in, in preparation, in preparation for for having Josh, I took a I took a gander at um, I think David Brophy is his name. David Brophy's mm. Uyghur Nation, yes, um, which is reform and revolution on the Russian Chinese frontier. And it was a fantastic book, and for anybody who's interested in um, uh, a book that is also dealing with. Um, the Russian and Soviet sources, in addition to Chinese uh, state documents, that's definitely yes. a book to check out. Yes. Nice. Kamiar, what we what we got okay. for our um, our musical self cultivation? Okay, so before before I want I want to play us out. I do want to say that you know the music segments are hopefully going to get a little bit more interesting as we can ramp up some of the uh, like Ajam distributed releases. So. You know, we'll, we'll explain that more in the future when it's ready. But we're hoping to actually give some of our uh, listeners like exclusive access to like newly recorded material. So we're gonna get there. You know, baby steps. Um, but for this one, I just kind of wanted to go in my archives and uh, just play us out with um, 
some music from the Black Sea re- region. This is the Girasun Parshalamasa. It's from uh, uh, Girasun, which I guess was um, Kerasus, you know, back when it had a Greek population. Only fun fact I'm going to give you, because you're just going to listen to this really nice folk song, is that actually that root of the name is the same root as cherry in Farsi, Gilos. Really? Right? In Turkish, Kiroz. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. We're going to have to bring in someone who's like an expert on, um, I don't know what you even call it, like the Black Sea, plus also like botany and um, agricultural uh, anthropology. But hit us in up, the meantime, botanist. We're just play everyone. Yeah, hit us up if you're, if, you're, if you're an expert on all these three things. But also knowing the Ajam network, and we're talking about the listenership a lot, there will be some. For sure. <laughs> I would, I would be upset oh, yeah. if oh, I did, wasn't. Oh, I did my defil in that. <laughs> But yeah, like, um, thanks for listening. Uh, thank you to our wonderful guest. Thank you, Josh. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and uh, once again, for our listeners, uh, you know, find us on Facebook. Uh, tweet at us if you want us to cover something interesting. Or we'd love to hear from you. So, see you guys. Bye bye. <laughs> Yeah, but they need some